One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes, we are back. NFL season 2023 is here. And just as always, X and I are here every Saturday bringing you the Slate podcast where we break down the Slate from top to bottom, looking at all aspects, things that might be going under the radar and places where we can build differently than the field. Because that's what it's all about, our path to first place. So, Without further ado, my main man, Zandamir, is here. We are going to talk about the slate, and I'll bring him in, and then I want to go through a little monologue before we kind of get this year going. X, how we doing today, brother? I'm stoked, man. This is the first weekend of NFL. There are 18 full season, you know, full regular season weeks to, to tilt our faces off and take shots at tournaments. Um, we're back. Hell yeah, man. And I am... More excited, I think, this year than I have ever been, to be honest. Um, busier than I have ever been, but I'm like fully into just NFL as like this is everything right now. <laughs> it's, I think I pictured, uh, I, I sent a picture on Twitter like two weeks ago that was a mug that my wife had bought me during last or during last season. It was like we interrupt this marriage for NFL football or something like that. And that's exactly how I feel right now. Yeah, so. But I am ready, dude. I'm going to start us off with a theoretical kind of big picture macro perspective of DFS of the NFL, and we're going to go from there. So bear with me real quick. The scores or the touchdowns per game in the 2022 season was down to the lowest levels, and this is touchdowns scored per team per game, was down to the lowest levels since 2017. In 2020, the COVID year was the spike year. That was scoring was up. That was 2.88 touchdowns scored per team per game. Last season, we were down into, and a standard NFL season over the last 10 years is about 2.66 touchdowns per team per game. Last year, we were down in the 2.40 range, which is a fairly stark touchdown difference uh, when you're looking at the peak back in 2020 compared to now. And it's been a gradual decline over the previous three seasons. Now, why is that important? That is important because it should affect our overall mentality and game plan from a theoretical perspective as we're building rosters, because obviously we care about touchdowns as one of the highly variant pieces, but one of the things that gives us bulk points um, all at once. So with, with that in mind, one, why is scoring down across the league when all these new rules have come into play where we expected it to boost touchdowns per game, um, namely the, all the rules with um, pass interference, all the different things to protect quarterbacks, the new nitty gritty. Um, and now, I mean, going into this year, we have offsetting rules that could benefit the offense, where if there's a 15-yard penalty and a 5-yard penalty, we could see actual yardage result from that. So we expect sustained higher rates of sustained drives, but that's not what we're seeing in the NFL, which is weird. And so I started digging into why that is. And 
it has a lot to do with what the defenses are doing. And we've seen this shift over the previous four-ish seasons into defensive coordinators building their defenses around a similar shell. And that shell is cover two. Cover two obviously means that we have two high safeties. It's, there's many different variations. There's Tampa two, there's cover two, there's two high, um, there's even quarters. But all those defense al- defensive alignments look similar to an opposing quarterback pre-snap. We've talked about how offensive coordinators are kind of trying to handle that now in today's NFL game. And there's really three different ways that you can influence that defensive alignment pre-snap. The first is pre-snap motion. The second is by having a fast (laughs) perimeter wide receiver, typically in a Z-type role, that is working downfield to influence one of those safeties. And the third is all up to the quarterback. How is he positioning his hips? How is he utilizing his eyes? Because that will influence the other quarterback or the other corner or safety on the field, not corner, safety. So this whole like macro picture of the NFL kind of feeds into DFS in the sense that if if sustained drives are dipping, if scoring touchdowns are dipping around the league, how can we kind of better approach this? And my answer that I came up with was game environments are even more important to us because the frequency at which touchdowns are being scoring is down, which means these kind of blow-up type game environments um, are hitting at a lower rate. And then I started thinking back to Osimo and kind of how he has transitioned his DFS gameplay. And I feel like at least once or twice a year, we see Osimo ship a major GPP with these crazy six, seven person game team stacks or game stacks. And I think that's for a, I was trying to like reverse engineer why he's doing that. And I think this is why, because game environments are so much more important to get right. And that doesn't mean we, we simply blindly overstack game environments. We're like, ah, I'm winning. No, it just means that because scoring is kind of down across the league and because sustained drives are down across the league, we see more field goals, we see red zone uh, defenses are tighter in the red zone as well. Nailing a game environment that has this path to blow up status is highly, highly important, even more important than it was in the past. So X, I'll bring you in now. What are your initial thoughts to that kind of monologue to start here? Uh, and the overall like macro perspective view of this, the, the league coming into 2023? Yeah, so I hadn't done that research, but this is super interesting. It makes sense to me. So if you're, what you're saying essentially is five years ago, if you found the game that happened to score 60 points, that's awesome. But there's likely some other games on the slate that are probably also really big. Maybe not 60, but some some other games probably in the 50s. And so if you had the right pieces from the 60-point game, plus, you know, a couple onesies from the right 50-point games, then you were in good shape. Yep. Nowadays, that's rarer. And so if you find the one 60-point game, it's not as likely that there are other, like, 50-plus point games that are competitive with that one blow-up game. And so that, you know, even though you might be lowering your 
expectation a little bit by condensing so much of your roster into one game. <clears throat> if that game is the only game, the blow up game on the slate and it outscores every other game by two touchdowns, you're more likely to find the right, like it's harder for players not in the blow up game to put up DFS worthy scores, like must have scores. And so by overstacking, you might not get the highest ceiling outcomes, but you're minimizing your variance of having to pick the right players from the one blow-up game and just say, I'm playing the entire passing offense. And they're all, if you know, if the game goes, if, it's, if the game has 450 passing yards and four passing touchdowns, you know, everyone gets some. And so even if not every player on that passing offense puts up a massive ceiling performance, you're going to get one or two massive ceiling performances and then another one or two solid performances. And given that the rate of solid performances is down throughout the league, the solid performances you're getting are enough, essentially. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. So we're seeing yeah. a lower rate of like 30 plus fantasy point outputs. I mean, that's why mm -hmm. guys like Josh uh, Jacobs and Devontae Adams were so valuable to us last year because it was a very, very high frequency in which one of those two were hitting. Um, and because like scoring is down around the league, that becomes even more important. And because it, it kind of comes back to this mindset where, yes, roster construction, we're building with the same salary cap that everybody else is building. But when the game kicks off, when the slate kicks off, we're in raw points territory. We need to be, we need a roster that is putting up points. So it, it comes into this kind of theoretical mindset of how do we capture those points? Um, and I think a, an interesting perspective in that journey is the increased importance of game environments this season. Yeah, I can get behind that. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see if that trend holds, but it seems like it will because there's there's a reasonable explanatory yeah. factor for why scoring is down. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's just variance causing scoring to go down, right? Like there's a reasonable explanatory factor. Remember when Cover 2 Shell was like, the Chiefs nemesis for a few games and a couple of years ago. And people were like, oh my God, the Chiefs are dead. Patrick Mahomes can't succeed against this type of defense. And, you know, he obviously he eventually did, right? He figured it out. But if that type of defense can throw hiccups into the best quarterback in the NFL's game, it makes sense, right? Like it feels reasonable to think that that is the explanatory factor that's causing scoring to go down. And, you know, it's always a bit of like push-pull relationship in, in football between offense and defense. And, you know, it's yeah. possible at some point offense, you know, offensive coordinators will figure out not just how to cope with cover two shell, which is kind of like where it figures they are right now, but actually how to exploit it and how to make it, you know, how to build an offensive scheme that, that makes, you know, playing cover two shell against it a bad choice, right? Makes it a weakness. It seems like we're not there yet. We haven't really seen that. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about that real quick. The the natural there's like a there's a, a cycle of scoring in the NFL. It's the it, and it starts with the defensive side. Defensive coordinators try new things, um, and the cycle right now is like that cover two shell. And two or three years ago, we were that was the start of this, like the post post workhorse running back era, which was like five years ago, where we were just jamming in Le'Veon Bell, David Johnson. Then we came into this cover two era, and. The cover two era started with we saw all the the reports coming out from the Kansas City Chiefs, the uh, Joe Burrow and the Bengals. Like we were figuring out how to maximize our offense against this cover two. We Patrick Mahomes was talking about it. Joe Burrow was talking about it. What did the Chiefs do after they we saw them started talking about it? They introduced this like I don't want to say Joker, but it's like this this schemed 
short yardage type role for their offense. And that happened after this whole discussion of the cover two um, happenings starting. And so we saw it last year. It was uh, Mikael Hardman to start the year. And then it became Jarek McKinnon once Mikael got hurt. But they fundamentally altered their offense in order to best combat this cover two shell look from opposing defenses. The Bengals, and, and what, what an important piece of that for the Chiefs is actually Marquez Valdez-Scantling because he is this downfield type role. He can command the respect and the attention of one of those safeties and hold him to a field or manipulate him via a crossing route or manipulate the whole overall defensive shell via um, running a route that requires heavy communication. But he is utilized in that offense as a safety manipulator, and he is looking to influence one of those safeties in that cover two shell. And that opens up this room for underneath stuff with these designed schemed role for Michael Hardman or Jarek McKinnon. Compare that to the Bengals. The Bengals don't really have a Z-type wide receiver. Their speedy guy, their guy who can influence safeties is Jamar Chase. But they don't want to use him in that role where he is just a safety manip manipulator running downfield. And they're... The, the, the Bengals are an interesting offense for me this year because I have not seen until we started getting a glimmer of hope this offseason, which said basically they are working on RPOs and they are working on integrating more pre-snap motion. Why are they doing that? It's to combat this cover two shell and figure out how they are best able to manipulate safeties without that like downfield presence because T Higgins is not that type of wide receiver. He's more of an X type. He's more of a, he's more of running routes that um, generate eh, fewer per touch upside. Tyler Boyd is not that they don't have a tight end seam stretcher. This is an offense that is still figuring out how they are going to um, best play against this cover two shell. So that was all interesting to me. The, fact that the Bengals are now introducing RPO, the fact that they are now trying to integrate more pre-snap motion stuff tells me that they're now like coming to the point where we could see them start to exploit cover two shells instead of kind of being more reactionary. So that's all just a kind of big picture macro mindset shift um, discussion that I think has to be had at the beginning of the season and how we can best build our DFS rosters from a game plan standpoint to take advantage of those tendencies in the NFL. With that, X, do you have anything else to say on that subject matter before we start getting into the slate? So minimum six players from one game is my MME role. Got it. Yes. I'm kidding. Don't <laughs> yeah. do that. Don't yeah. do that. <laughs> it's, but don't restrict yourself from it either, I think is the point here, right? Like, and we've seen this for years. Yeah. This hasn't just been the last couple of years. Like, I remember there was, God, there was a few years ago where a Millie maker was won by Trevor Semyon's stack when he was the quarterback of the Broncos and they were visiting the Steelers. And it was like Trevor, it had like Trevor Semyon, it had uh, Demarius Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, I guess two primary receivers. And I think it had like three or four Steelers. And you know, so it was like six or seven players from that game. And that was the game that went off, right? Like, and 
the in large tournaments, what you're the, what you're trying to build for with that type of build is you're basically saying, look, the chance of this game really going to the point, really going off to the point where it where it supports six or seven tournament worthy DFS scores is absolutely quite low. But if it does, no one plays six or seven player stacks, right? So if it hits, I'm the only one or one of a very very small number of people who benefits from that hit. Um, and so that overstacking is, I mean, it's always been viable in tournaments, right? But like, it sounds like it's becoming even more viable as scoring becomes more, when the blow-up games are separating more from the average game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> this slate, man, we have 1.5, we'll say we have 1.5 games that with a game total of 47 or higher. Obviously, I say the 1.5 because we have the separator in um, the Dolphins and the Chargers. And then we kind of have this, and I don't know if it's going to go completely overlooked, but we have this Bengals and Browns game that has a game total currently of 47 and a half. Every other game is either in this uncertainty window, I like to call, between a game total of 43 and a half and 47 and then below 43 points. Now, is that a factor of what we saw last season with scoring down in the league? Is that a factor of the uncertainty that's introduced in week one with so many moving pieces? And, and this offseason, we had more moving pieces than I can remember in recent history. Between personnel changes, between coaching changes was the big one. We had coaching changes almost everywhere around the league. And Or is it a factor of the betting market is getting sharper. What is your take on the state of the game totals in week one? It's weird, right? Like it feels, and even that one game, even the Chargers Dolphins opened at 47.5 and was bet up. If you actually go look at the opening lines for this week, they were really tightly clustered. Um, the highest opening line was Chiefs Lions at 49.5. Um, the lowest opening line was Washington, Arizona at 40.5. And the most games opened between like 47 and 43 or 42. So like that, you know, and like that's weird to me. It's really weird to see all to see opening lines be so tightly clustered like that. And what that says to me is, you know, Vegas sets an opening line that it thinks is somewhat reasonable. And then they start taking bets and they start taking bets with low limits and they use that to conduct price discovery, essentially saying which way is the market leaning on. If I if we open, you know, Chargers Dolphins at forty seven point five, where's the money coming in, and who's betting it? Are they sharp betters? Are they people who we know are sharp betters? We have a history with them, um, and so then they use that to essentially conduct price discovery and figure out where the market price really is. And so we've seen more line movement this week than is normal. Like we have a lot of games that have, where the line has moved by two, three or more points. Um, and that's really unusual. Usually like a three plus point move from opening to lot to like Saturday is really rare. Um, that's a big move. And so it tells me that even Vegas doesn't know what to do with this. And so they like their, their opening lines were way off. The market has now adjusted them um, and that's how it works, right? Like that's how that market is meant to work. Um, but when you see that big of a difference between open and live, usually that means like it could mean there was some news, right? Like there was some unexpected news and that can often drop the total of like terrible weather or a key player being out. Um, but seeing this much line movement is really unusual from like in, in my experience. Like that just tells me that like no one knows what's going on. Like if, if you if you believe that Vegas is generally pretty sharp, 
um, at, at knowing what's likely is to happen in, in, a, in a week of football and in, in scoring. Um, they're clueless this week, essentially. And if they're clueless, if they don't know, then we should recognize that our knowledge is likely we don't know as much as we think we do. And that's a refrain I always say in week one, right? Like the, the theme of week one NFL is we, is we know way less than we, than we think. Um, you know, we have a lot of thoughts, a lot of theories, but until these teams get out on the field and show us how they're going to use their players and you can see how the players perform, we really don't know much. And I think that's true every week one. It feels even more true this year. And to your point, like lots of coaching changes everywhere. And we're trying to think, we're trying to think through like, how is this coaching change going to impact how this team deploys its players and how they, you know, how they attack their opponent? And uh, it's all theory right now, right? Like we, we have ideas, but we don't know. And so the point of all this is week one is a great week to be contrarian because as the season goes on, we get a better sense of the team's identities and, and which players are playing well, which, which young players are stepping up and, do, and, and improving their game, which older players might be uh, declining, um, <clears throat> you know, how offenses match up with defenses and vice versa. Uh, we get a better sense of that as the season goes along. And so generally, as a general rule, as the season goes on, the chalk gets better, right? Like a 20% owned play is more likely to be a really strong play in week nine than it is in week one. And so don't get swayed by ownership in week one. Uh, you know, recognize that chalk always forms. And so, you know, don't get swayed by ownership and be like, well, this guy's going to be 25% owned. That means he must be good. I, I better have some of him. Um, you know, recognize that we're all guessing at this point. And so be willing to take stands and be willing to go against ownership. Like this is the best week of the year to be, to have a really contrarian approach. Beautiful, dude. So with that mindset, and again, considering, and this is coming full circle now, considering what we opened with, the fact that game environments are probably a little bit more important than a standard NFL season, parlay that all together. And now we're looking at a week one slate full of uncertainty where game environments are increasingly important. And the fact that a lot of these games are clumped together, there is still likely going to be a game environment that kind of comes out of nowhere and we look back and be like, oh yeah, 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 that was kind of obvious. That was the game environment we had to have. So now we're going to talk about a little bit, we're going to get into those game environments here shortly, but I, I want to quickly talk about player pricing. And the way that I am seeing this slate is like we know that player pricing in week one is soft. Like these players are all priced almost unanimously below where they ended the season last year. And we know why that is. We know that these um, big DFS companies are trying to attract players. We know that they want to get them hooked on the game. We, they want to make it easy for them to build rosters with their favorite players, yada, yada, the list goes on. But typically in a week one, we see some significant value opened up on the slate, primarily at the running back position because salary is, re is released five to six weeks prior to these games happening. We see some, some backfield shakeups during that time. And so typically we're dealing with two to four backfields that are really opening up value for the slate. So that brings your a, a standard week one if there's no injuries, just because pricing is the way that it is. We're building with like an effective salary cap of maybe 52,000 instead of the standard 50. Just because player pricing is down that, you know, 5%, whatever the case may be. But when you 
add in the typical running back injuries or backfield shakeups that we get and the value that that opens up. Now we're talking about a standard week one. We're building with like an effective salary of maybe 40, 54 or 55K. So a 10% increase to our standard just because the median projections of the salaries are that off. Well, this year, all of the injuries that have occurred since player pricing came out are at the wide receiver and the tight end position. We only have one really backfield where there's a a role greater than the pricing expected. And that is the New Orleans Saints. And quickly touching on that situation, Jamal Williams is in an absolute atrocious matchup. He is a straight-ahead plotter. He is facing a Titans defense that is has ranked first and sixth in over the past two seasons in yards allowed per carry. And we know that their identity is kind of built around the trenches. We know that they're going to play a either seven in the box or a stacked box with eight and play heavy rates of zone defense to primarily cover three behind it. We kind of know that, and there's not a lot of coaching changes in Tennessee, so we can expect those tendencies to kind of continue here. So all of that goes into this overall salary discussion of, hey, the standard practices in week one are that we're building with this 55K effective salary cap instead of 50, but in truth, this week for the 2022 or 2023 season, it's more in alignment with a 20 or 52k-ish effective salary cap because we don't have those massive values that really really open up unlock slash whatever the slate. So this kind of mentality again goes to or if you read the end around how I'm seeing the the field likely handling this this salary makeup composition of week one is we're likely to see this kind of stars and scrub mentality and, and early ownership projections and ownership projections into Saturday morning are kind of backing this up where it's like the top three wide receivers are going to be chalk uh, as far as player salary goes. We're going to see, we have maybe, I don't know, eight to 10 potential like perceived, we'll say, options at pay down wide receiver. Um, and we'll say that's 4K salary and below. I mean, look at the list. It's like you have Zay Flowers, you have Alec Pierce, you have the min price guys. Marvin Mims um, is going to be owned depending on Jerry Judy's status, but um, that's a wait and see kind of thing right now. There are, I mean, nobody's going to be playing Trey Palmer, but he's down there at min price. Um, there are other like between 4K and 3K salary wide receivers that the field is going to kind of glob onto and force this kind of stars and scrubs approach for this week. So again, that all goes into our game plan development this week. How do we handle that? Um, any quick comments on that kind of mindset for this week, X? No, I think spot on. And, you know, Jamal Williams gives me nightmares because there was that week last year where he was mega chalk. Yeah. And he said, don't play him. Um, he doesn't have a big ceiling. And he proceeded to have the best game of his entire career off the back of a one long run that was the longest run he'd ever had in his career by like 30 yards. 51 like yarder. Yeah. His run was like 26 yards. And he had like a 50 something yard touchdown run. And like that just made yeah, that anyway. Um, but he's in kind of the same position here, right? Like Jamal Williams is a rock solid cash play. His role is awesome. Um, and he's a, you know, he's a strong cash game option. Um, but I very much question the ceiling. Um, <clears throat> similar. And then, but outside of individual plays, like 
you're, the roster construction, you're right. And, and the easiest way to see what comp and roster construction is going to be is if you have access to an optimizer, just go in, don't touch it at all, don't change any settings, run 100 lineups, see what ownership looks like, see what rosters look like. Then go in and set, all optimizers have like a volatility setting, which basically for, for every roster it builds, it applies like a range of outcomes modifier to player projections. So it essentially adds a bit of randomness. Um, apply some volatility, run 100 rosters, see what they look like. What you will see is every roster you build is going to have a like a, a, a punt play on it, either a, a 3K or cheaper tight end, a 4K or cheaper wide receiver, or both. And I know because I've done this across a couple different optimizers, different projection sets. That's a good way to get to sense like what is the field doing. And so, you know, what that tells us is one really easy way to just be different than the field is build some, especially if you're building multiple rosters, build some that don't have any wide receivers under 4K and don't have a cheap tight end. Go with more mid-range. Um, that, that is a way, and then you don't have to worry at all about ownership beyond that. Like, just that, that in and of itself sets you up with a very different construction that's going to be pretty unique to the field. Like, this is very much a stars scrubs week or at least that's how people are going to build for it i will also note though you talked about you talked about backfields and value opening up um and you didn't mention the colts that was for a reason we'll talk ah, about that here okay. we'll get to the colts later <laughs> yes sir uh yeah so that's kind of the macro picture of the nfl now the macro picture of the slate. Now let's talk about some game environments because we've been setting up oh, my son my babysitter's slacking dude uh, so that's, 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 I know, dude, <laughs> she's fired. Um, yeah, so that's the overall macro perspective of the NFL, where it's at the macro perspective of this DFS slate, where it's at. Now let's get into the nitty gritty of talking about game environments and I'll throw it over to you X as I go deal with my son. What is, talk about some game environments that you think are, are going overlooked one and that have this path to becoming what we're looking for in DFS, where it is a game environment where no one else can kind of touch it. Okay. So I, you, I noticed the way you phrase that is you don't want me to talk about Chargers uh, Dolphins yet, which is fine. We will skip that one. Um, I'm sure there'll be plenty of time to talk about Chargers Dolphins later. So <clears throat> looking at ownership, um, we do see, like, it's really spread out in week one, too. Like, chalk has formed, but there's a lot of there are a lot of guys projected for 10% to 15% ownership, that kind of mid-range ownership, like not super chalky, but not contrarian. And that's also common in week one. Ownership gets more spread out than normal. Um, so also a reason you don't have to worry quite as much about ownership in week one, generally speaking. Um, Browns Bengals has the second highest game total on the slate, and the ownership does not quite reflect it outside of a lot of ownership on Jamar Chase because of the aforementioned Star Scrubs build construction that is uh, that people are attracted to this week. Um, but Jamar Chase is the and then Jamar Chase is the only chalk piece I have from that game currently, and then Joe Mixon in the low double digits. Everyone else in that game is in single digits, um, <clears throat> so that's a really interesting game environment. And I don't know that it's overlooked per se. But for the second highest game total on the slate, it does feel like it's not as high as it should be. Um, and then if you start going down the list of totals, you see a couple games at like the 46 range, which is the tied for the third highest total on the slate. You get Jags Colts. Um, Anthony Richardson's going to be popular here, um, but I think his pass catchers are not going to be. And the Jags ownership is a little spread out now that they've added Calvin Ridley. 
Um, I think people don't quite know where to go in the Jags receiving core. And so, like, Calvin Ridley's getting some ownership, but not a ton. That's a game I could see blowing up. Like, we know the Jags' offense can be good. We know Trevor Lawrence clearly took a big step forward last year. Now they've added, they've replaced Marvin Jones with Calvin Ridley, which is a pretty clear upgrade. Um, And the Colts have Anthony Richardson, who is very much a wild card. It's hard for it's hard to imagine him being worse than Matt Ryan. Um, you know, well, does that mean he will always you know perform well in every game? No, but I think he has the potential to cause a game to blow up. And he has a couple of talented pass catchers on his team. And the Jags' defense is not great, so that's a game where I could easily see it. You know, having I could see that game having sort of barbell-shaped range of outcomes, specifically on the Colts side where Anthony Richardson in his first NFL game could totally flop. He could just really struggle, throw four picks, and just flop. Or he could have a big game, he could throw a couple touchdowns and rush for another 70 or 80 yards, and he could kind of put the Colts on his back and carry them along to a big performance, which then pushes the Jags. Um, <clears throat> another game that I think has <clears throat> higher has a higher range of outcomes is <clears throat> Vikings-Bucks. And uh, Ilo is probably very excited to talk about this one. Yay, um, let's so, like, do it. let's talk about this one for a minute because this is a game environment. Like everyone's going to be on Justin okay. Jefferson. Um, there's some ownership on Hawkinson as well, um, but outside of that, the Vikings as a whole are not capturing a ton of ownership beyond Jefferson and a little bit of Hawk. So, you know, the Vikings we know are a good offense. We know they're a middling defense. We know they're willing to throw the ball a lot, and we know they have a very concentrated offense. All of those things are are things we look for in DFS. But can the Bucks keep up? Well, Baker Mayfield has not been good. Like, that's clear. Baker Mayfield has been a bad quarterback for a while. But earlier in his career, he showed signs that he could be a good quarterback. So can he find that again? I don't know. But what I do know is that he's playing with the best wide receiver duo he's ever had in his career in Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. Uh, He's playing with an offensive coordinator who turned Geno Smith's career around last year in Seattle. And Geno Smith last year in Seattle was in a very similar boat. He was a QB no one really thought much of. Um, you know, people were surprised when he won the starting role coming out of camp over Drew Locke. Um, you know, no one thought he was going to be any good. Uh, but all of a sudden, you give, him a, you give him a talented offensive coordinator and you give him two elite wide receivers, and he had a really great season. So could the Bucks pull off something similar? Maybe. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility to think that this offensive coordinator whose name escapes me uh, could not, could, you know, pull off the same magic again. Dave Canales. Um, so that's an interesting game environment to me. Um, I don't know, like, what else? I mean, you can make a case for a lot of we'll different game We'll stop there for now. I think, and especially for, like, one side of game environments, but those are the ones that really attract me. Yeah, yeah, we'll 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 get into some of those as well at a deeper level. Let's quickly um, my turn my turn to talk about <laughs> Minnesota and Tampa Bay. Yeah, so I've talked about this <laughs> this situation almost all week. It feels like I've done some video stuff for Twitter. I've talked about it on various podcasts. We talked about it on the searching for ceiling episode. Um, if you're not checking that out, quick plug for that, go check out Rich and I will be live every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern to on a new show for OWS this season, searching for ceiling. And we, it's the, this kind of idea for that is 
going through analytics, the marriage of analytics, theoretics, and conceptuals um, with one of the better st statisticians uh, in the game um, in Rich Hrybar. So check that out uh, again every week. But come back to this game environment, Minnesota and Tampa Bay. A lot of it, well, I don't say a lot of it, but the overall macro perspective of this game environment, there's a lot of moving pieces, one, for each team. I mean, you look at Minnesota, they brought in, brought in Brian Flores to take over Ed Donatel uh, at defensive coordinator. That moves their defensive shell, their scheme, how we expect that defense to run from like this ultra cover three prevent our 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 third layer of defense is going to be playing like 15 to 20 yards off the line of scrimmage to now this in your face, punch you in the mouth. We're going to be bringing pressure. We're going to see a lot of cover one. We're going to see a lot of Island matchups. So yes, while the Vikings ranked in the bottom three in the league against passing in 2022, they are kind of set up to potentially find themselves in that same position this year, but for very different reasons. Now they are going to, they're probably going to have a much better drive, defensive drive success rate against this year because they're going to disrupt drives. They're going to get at the quarterback. They're going to probably create and generate more turnovers, more sacks, all of those things. But the trade-off from that is they're probably going to see an increased rate of splash plays and explosive plays against because they're going to be bringing the pressure and they're going to leave their guys in man-on-man -man coverage behind that. How does that set up against Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and, and company in Tampa? Well, that should be viewed as a plus to their expected explosive play rate. Um, yes, they're probably it's Baker Mayfield. They're probably going to take some sacks. They might he might throw a pick or two, but the overall aggression that we expect from Brian Flores, I would view as a plus to this overall game environment because it is going to make it's going to basically give you barbells like X talked about earlier as far as individual drives are concerned from Tampa. You're going to see three and outs um, primarily introduced from sacks or turnovers. Turnovers. You're going to see uh, shortened drives, but you're also going to see these splash plays develop. So that all goes into kind of one side of that game. The other side is this Tampa Bay defense that we've had a good look at, and they have some solid names on paper. Their depth chart, it looks fairly nice. That said, we kind of know how they're going to attack it. They're going to try and generate organic pressure up front. We kind of have a good idea that they're not going to have these heightened blitz rates, and they're going to play a lot of cover three behind. Looking at Justin Jefferson against cover three, and I brought this out in a couple places this week as well, Justin Jefferson averaged 15.1 yards per reception against cover three last year. He was the third best wide receiver in the league at targets per route run and yards per route run against cover three. So all of that comes together to like, how is this game environment going to blow up? Well, it's likely going to come through Justin Jefferson. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers have extremely athletic linebackers. So a slight dent to the expectation for TJ Hawkinson, who is no longer running this kind of downfield tight end role. I mean, his average depth of target after he came over to Minnesota um, last year was like in the low sixes. So this is no longer a guy who is kind of being pushed downfield as he was in Detroit. He's more of this like he needs volume and he needs touchdowns type wide receiver. 
Last year, that volume was 100% there. Those touchdowns were there. He had those blow-up games. But in this matchup and kind of his role in this offense and what we saw after he came over last year is he's kind of this moderate ADOT guy, medium ADOT guy that needs volume and touchdowns to pay off. And now in this matchup against these highly athletic linebackers um, and safeties from Tampa, the path to that happening is that much smaller. So if this game environment blows up, it's likeliest to come through Justin Jefferson. But then what do we expect from Tampa should that happen? When they get punched in the mouth, how are they going to respond? Are they going to continue, you know, viewing Baker Mayfield as this game manager? Are they going to be taking shots against cover one? I think it's most likely the latter. I think we could see them taking shots to Mike Evans and um, to Trey Palmer on the perimeter against a second-year cornerback and a first-year cornerback away from Byron Murphy in the slot against um, um, Chris Godwin. So I think there is definitive potential for this game environment to blow up. I think it's likeliest to come through Justin Jefferson. And I think in response, Mike Evans and Trey Palmer both carry some significant upside here. And I put out on via the OWS Twitter and TikTok a quick... I call it red light reactions uh, video on this situation. And I talked about Baker Mayfield with um, with Trey Palmer and with Rashad White. And I think if you're playing Baker Mayfield, I think the double stack needs to be, so I'm going to amend this a little bit. I think the double stack needs to be Trey Palmer and Mike Evans on the, in that perimeter role against cover one um, working downfield because that is the clearest path for Baker Mayfield himself to provide a GPP-worthy score. I think Rashad White is still highly interesting from this game environment. I think he is best played in a skinny stack with Justin Jefferson and no quarterback or as a one-off type piece because we expect the volume to be there. We expect that he might see some... Um, increased target rate with Baker Mayfield at quarterback, um, but that does not necessarily mean that he is a driving force into this game environment blowing up. Uh, quick reaction thoughts from UX on that. Uh, I am aligned with you. The ownership for this game on the Bucks side is Chris Godwin's the only player that I'm seeing attracting any ownership, and that's kind of a brand. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of giving him like a brand name boost where people think of Godwin as the underneath safe receiver with a really high floor. Um, I don't think he actually has it in this matchup. I think the ownership there is a mistake in tournaments. Um, you know, could Godwin hit? He's a really good player. Of course he could. Um, but I think that that's not the likeliest path for the Bucks to succeed. And I, I have my MME rules almost all built out. And actually one of them I have is in lineups that include Justin Jefferson, boost Rashad White's projection by 20%. And so what that accomplishes is it doesn't force pairings of White with Jefferson, but it makes them more likely. Um, and then, yeah, I agree. Baker Mayfield, you like Baker Mayfield does not have like a 35 point ceiling, real, like not realistically, right? Uh, Baker Mayfield has like a 25 to 27 point ceiling. Um, and so, and he, he's not going to get there with his legs. And so, if he gets there, he gets there by carrying, you know, and given the pricing of the receivers, it's almost certain he gets there by carrying more than one pass catcher with him um, to to really strong salary adjusted scores. And so I agree, like, I th you could stack Mayfield with just Mike Evans, I suppose. But I think the better way to do it, especially when you think about this, the macro state of the slate and where people are going with the roster construction, is also to include um, the cheap guy whose name I can never remember, uh, uh, Tucker? 
Who's the running Trey Palmer. Um, Trey yeah, Palmer. Sorry, Palmer, thank you. Yeah. Um, I always think of Palmer, I think of Josh Palmer. Anyway, if you know that, yeah, exactly. you know that a lot of rosters are going to be playing a, a cheap wide receiver and the popular ones are going to be like Mims and the Rams guys and you know, maybe Zay, Fla- Zay Flowers mm-hmm. I don't have for much right now, but maybe that, you know, I might I might bump him up a little bit. I don't think he's going to be as good as I have him. Yeah, especially if Mark oh, yeah, Andrews misses. Um, you know, Reed, if uh, Christian Watson misses. So, like, there's a lot of ownership on these cheap guys. Oh, is he? I didn't he's see out. that. Okay, I've got to adjust him. Okay. Yeah, Watson is um, out. So Reed's gonna Reed's gonna go up a fair bit then um, in Green Bay, and um, so just by including uh, Palmer, you get sort of leverage off of all the other cheap wide receivers. Like you don't need him, you don't need him to get twenty points. You need him to outscore the other three K guys. And if he outscores the other three K guys in your Baker Mayfield stack, then you're you're sitting pretty. Yeah, and the the macro perspective of the quarterback position, which will transition us through this game environment to this discussion of positionals, um, the macro perspective of having an additional 2,000 in effective salary to build with on a given slate is we're going to see, from a human psychology perspective, people are going to want to allocate that salary to the positions of more certainty. Um, It's without going into like human psychology and stuff. We we like to humans seek. Um, certainty. We, we seek comfort in just our day-to-day lives, and that, that carries over into DFS um, expectations of the field. And so if we expect kind of the, the, the general populace, populace of the field this week to allocate their additional effective salary to wide receiver and quarterback, because those are now the positions in the NFL with a higher degree of certainty than running backs um, with split backfields and with tight ends, then this pay down area of salary at quarterback becomes a little bit more interesting. I'm not, and it, we have, we'll have, we have a catch 22 as far as that discussion goes this week, because the, we have seven quarterbacks that are in the high price salary range that are in medium to good game environments that are, that are capable of that put the slate out of reach score. So it's not like we're talking about, we have, only Justin Fields and only Josh Allen on this slate where we have to worry about them failing to put the slate out of reach for these pay down options at quarterback to be viable. No, we have like seven, no less than than seven of these guys this week. We have Lamar Jackson, um, Jalen Hurts, Justin Fields, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Tua, and Trevor Lawrence are probably those names. So those are the like put the slate out of reach at quarterback names. So in order for these pay down options to be along the lines of closer to optimal on this slate. And then again, the difference between optimal and um, in practice is very, very stark in DFS. Like we don't need optimal to win, but it's important to kind of work through these, this thought process um, is like, what is the, what is a potential path to optimal this week? So because there's seven of these guys, we kind of need all of them to not put out, put the slate out of reach Based on their pricing, that is like 38 to 42 fantasy points. Um, if none of those guys are doing that, now these paydown options have a clear path to being optimal. The field, though, is likely looking at the quarterback position from the extremes, the payup options or the paydown options. But the paydown options are highly unlikely to include Baker Mayfield. It's Anthony Richardson who brings that rushing upside. And we look at Anthony Richardson, who he is as a player. He got one game in the preseason where he saw an entire half of play. He had 38 rush yards in that half, 
but he also had a 15-yard carry that was called back for holding. That would have put him at 53 yards and a half of play. And I think that's kind of what we can expect from him this season, that he's going to have a path to 100 yards rushing almost every time out. This is very, very much the Justin Fields-esque. He might not need the passing to put up a 40-pointer. Um, he might be able to do that on the backs of 150 yards, two touchdowns, and then 100 yards and a score on the ground. Um, that's who Anthony Richardson is. So he is extremely underpriced on the slate relative to that range of outcomes. Um, but the field is probably going to Anthony Richardson paying down. They're probably going to Sam Howell paying down. They're not going to Baker freaking Mayfield freaking whatever <laughs> insurance or I don't know. I don't even remember who he is associated with all those commercials, but the commercial man. Um, and, and so that brings up this interesting dynamic for Baker and kind of why we led with that um, here that you can get different as far as salary allocation goes, as far as roster construction goes, very, very easily. Like double stack Baker, bring it back with Justin Jefferson, and now your roster's different. Do whatever the hell you want with the rest of it. So that's that kind of micro quarterback perspective. One last thing that I want to make sure that we cover um, in this kind of macro exploration of the slate is where are the players that we kind of have to account for um, on rosters? So those players are probably the Vikings as a whole, concentrated offense, high pass volume um, against a Tampa, Day, Tampa Bay defense that they're set up well to exploit. Um, primarily Justin Jefferson. Those players are probably Chris Olave. Those players are probably Calvin Ridley. Those are kind of the situations where I see on this slate, we kind of have to be accounting for those players. That does not mean we have to play them all, although we could because <laughs> Chris Olave and Calvin Ridley's ownership right now are not where I thought they would be. Um, but those are kind of the players we kind of have to account for. So that means we're using those if-then statements. We are, if, if Calvin Ridley fails on the slate, what is the reason? Potentially Jacksonville defense, potentially Travis Etienne, which is super interesting on the slate. Potentially one of the other three pass catchers that they have that are going to contribute on a given week. Um, as far as Chris Olave, a lot going on there. Is it a deep bomb to Rashid Shahid? So he soaks up a yardage and a touchdown um, in one fail swoop that takes away from Chris Olave's expectation. Is it Juwan Johnson scoring two touchdowns, which takes away from his expectation? Is it Taysom Hill, which is... <laughs> I included Taysom Hill in the freaking end around for the first time in my life this week yeah, yeah, yeah you gotta go check that out dude it's, it's freaking gold um but yeah that's sick but Taysom hill like their running back depth is kind of down to just jamal williams in uh and that's assuming kendra miller is out he did not practice at all this week but he's listed as questionable i think it's highly unlikely that he plays um and they have a bunch of uh, what the hell is his name kirk Merritt is the only other running back on the roster right now um, and they're probably going to bring up a practice squad guy. So look for any further roster moves from the Saints over the rest of the today. Uh, I'd assume they're going to bring up a practice squad guy. But it's like, then they have this queen chess piece in Taysom Hill that we know he can receive some carries. We know he can play the slot. We know he can play out wide. We know he can play quarterback. We know he can play tight end. We know he can line up in line. This dude kind of does it all for them. But if he scores a touchdown or two that's directly taking away from Chris Olave's expectation. Uh, so he's a super interesting piece for me as well. So do you have any other places or 
what are your thoughts on those? Like we have to kind of account for these situations this week, or do you have any more? Yeah. So I'm with you on the quarterbacks. Like if you're thinking about paying down a quarterback, I think you nailed all the ones that you want to think about. Um, as essentially you're saying, if you're paying down a quarterback, you're saying none of those big names have a put the slate away kind of performance. And so what does that mean? So like if we rattle down the list really quick, what does it mean for Jalen Hurts if he doesn't put up 40? Not much. He's on the road against a really good defense. I don't think you have to like account for that. I don't think it's like play Jalen Hurts or play, you know, DeAndre Swift or play Jalen Hurts or play the, the Patriots defense. Lamar Jackson, um, the Ravens are likely to just stomp all over the Texans. And so if Lamar isn't having a big game, then you could argue J.K. Dobbins um, or Ravens defense, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more later. Um, yes, are Joe Burrow, um, you know, if he could, you know, he's the pocket passers have fewer paths to 40 plus um, <clears throat> that he, that they really need to, like, put the slate out of reach. But Joe Burrow and Joe Burrow has a spread out offense. I don't think you have to account for him. I would have a rule that says if my quarterback is one of the three cheap guys that I like, um, then increase Joe Mixon's projection by like 10 percent. Um, I'd want to be a little bit heavier on Mixon in my cheap quarterback lineups, thinking that the Bengals' touchdowns flow through him. Uh, Justin Herbert, I think if you're not playing that game, you're essentially betting that game doesn't get to like 50-plus points. So I don't think you have to account for Herbert or Tua. You're just simply making a bet that that game does not get to like, does not blow up into a shootout. And even though it's likely that game has a good score, uh, I don't think you have to account for it in that way because so much of the field's on it already that you're just kind of hoping that game flops or the production is spread out, you know, around enough guys that no one puts up a, a really smash fantasy score. Um, the Vikings, you have to account for the skill position players, but not so much Kirk Cousins. Um, Trevor Lawrence, you already talked about. And Justin Fields, uh, I think, you know, you could play Khalil Herbert, who I actually really quite like uh, this week as a tournament play. Um, yep. And again, I don't think you have to play them. I don't think it's saying, it's not a situation of saying, if I'm not playing Justin Fields, I must play Khalil Herbert. That's too restrictive. Um, but you would say, if I'm playing a, if I'm playing another expensive quarterback, I'm just betting that Justin Fields is going to have a good game, but my quarterback outscores him. Um, if you're playing a cheap quarterback, like you're not betting that Baker Mayfield is going to put up 40. So what you're saying is Justin Fields doesn't have a huge game. And so in that case, the most, the guy most likely to benefit would be Herbert. Um, it's like, I like to think about it in that process when I'm thinking about a cheap play is a cheap play at quarterback is essentially saying, yeah, who are the expensive quarterbacks in the slate? What teams do I need to think about? Like what happens for those teams not to put up big scores? Does that affect any other individual player on that roster? Or am I just betting that team just doesn't have a huge game, right? Like Philly, I'm fine betting they just don't have a huge game on the road against New England defense. Um, you know, Burrow and Fields, I'm, I'm betting that the running backs, you know, occupy more of the scoring than the quarterbacks. Yeah, I like that call a good bit. We touched on the state of the slate at the quarterback position. Any final onesie-twosies quarterbacks that you're kind of eyeing um, as part of this game environment bet? Not for me. I mean, I think, you know, there's, you could make cases for other ones. And if you're doing a lot of entries, I think there's there's some other games that are less likely to create a huge game environment, but not impossible. Um, so you could make cases for like playing, you know, Brock Purdy or Kenny Pickett and betting on that game. Um, you could, you know, there's, there's other spots you could bet on. You could bet that Jordan Love is actually good um, against a bad Chicago defense. Like there's other spots you can attack if you want to. Um, for me though, I try to usually limit my play in MME to at most like eight to 10 quarterbacks. 
Um, and so, like, you, you know, you've got seven high-end ones that you mentioned, and then you've got the three cheapies that we've talked about, right, Richardson, Howell, and Baker. And so that's, that's it for me. Yeah, my, my five max player pool, um, or <clears throat> mixing these guys out through my portfolio, being single entry, three max primary, are Anthony Richardson, Baker Mayfield, Lamar Jackson, Jalen Hurts, and Russell Wilson. Um, and all of those are going to be tied to game environment bets, and we'll talk to those here shortly. Uh, let's move over to running backs. Uh, now that we talked about quarterbacks kind of game environments and we're going to, we're going to tie into some of these game environment bets as well in this discussion. Um, the running back position is interesting this week because we kind of have, um, a solid idea of where ownership is going to be flowing and how that is going to influence roster construction. Austin Eckler is probably is obviously going to be owned because he's playing in the top perceived game environment of the week. The only game with a game total north of 50 points we have jamal williams who's going to soak up some ownership because the boost to his median projection introduced from a higher expected expected volume we have guys like raheem Mostert and um rashad white and brian robinson um damian pierce even that are gonna see some ownership because they are priced below their opening expected role which is going to influence a median projection that is higher than their uh, salary uh, but outside of that so you'll notice those players are priced in this very uh, barbell type fashion it is the pay up running backs um, and then I mean, we can expect some ownership on derrick henry because he's derrick henry save matchup uh, he's <laughs> One of the only running backs that can have a path to 30 plus touches um, if a game environment stays close. Uh, so, and then we have these pay down type options where they're the perceived value. A lot of that middle range of player pricing tier, so like from 7K down to 6K range, are largely going overlooked outside of two guys. That being uh, Joe Mixon and, um, and Alexander Madison, who are going to soak up some ownership. So from a macro perspective, I'm immediately drawn to running backs in this middle range. And this kind of ties into the overall macro perspective of the slate where we expect kind of a stars and scrubs approach from the field. A balanced roster kind of brings some additional leverage this week. And so these running backs in this middle tier of player pricing, um, not named the, the guys that we just rattled off, are highly, highly intriguing. And the first name on that list for me is Travis Etienne. He's kind of being poo-pooed on the by the best ball crowd based on his preseason usage and um, the the hype around Tank Bigsby. He accounts for one of our players that we had to, that we said earlier that we need to be accounting for this week in Calvin Ridley. If Travis Etienne is rushing for 100 yards and two scores, that directly takes away from Calvin Ridley's expectation. He's in a game environment that we said we kind of want to keep an eye on and, and be attacking. So he's a very, very interesting name to me, priced at 6.9, right 100 above Joe Mixon and below the upper echelon and then way above the lower value guys that I think is going to go entirely overlooked this week that is carries significant theoretical leverage, carries a solid range of outcomes. Uh, what say you here? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Simple enough. Try to keep it quick. Aaron wants it to go quick. No, he's, I mean, I've got him for, uh, if you, if you, if I sort running backs in uh, by their projected points, 
Um, of all the running backs projected for, that I projected for 15 or more fantasy points, uh, Etienne is the lowest owner. Is the lowest ownership. There you go. Um, the second lowest, by the way, is Nick Chubb. In case you're curious. Um, so you know, does Etienne have the ceiling to put up a tournament-worthy score at 6,900? Yes. Yes. Uh, is he going to be owned? And and is he, or is he in a great matchup? Yes. Uh, is he going to be owned? Uh, at a level that reflects his ceiling and likelihood to hit that ceiling in this matchup? No. Leverage. A course by X. <laughs> There's two other names in that range that are highly intriguing and appealing to me. J.K. Dobbins at 6,600. You mentioned him earlier in the discussion of Lamar Jackson. And then down to Mr. Aaron Jones. At okay. s- What's that? For some reason, I thought you were going to say Cam Akers, and I was like, please don't say Cam Akers. No, dude. Come on now. Come on. Come on. We are, we are realists as well as theorists here. Um, Aaron Jones, man. Christian Watson is ruled out. Romeo Dobbs is questionable, and that decision is likely going to go down to a game-time decision, which they are an afternoon game. But the fallout of that is the field is highly likely to go glom onto the extreme perceived value in Jaden Reed um, and Luke Musgrave. Jaden Reed is min price wide receiver at 3K. Um, Luke Musgrave has all of this offseason hype. He's got it all. He is the offseason hype man poster boy. Um, and he's priced at only 2900 um, And so the field is kind of just overlooking Aaron Jones <laughs> based on who we know Aaron Jones is. I would expect that he's going to be more involved in the pass game. I would expect that he's going to see 14 to 18 carries. And there's a a significant upside against a Chicago defense that while they made improvements, they did not really make improvements along the defensive line. So that is one of the higher mismatch offensive line, defensive line uh, matchups this week. And Aaron Jones is kind of just being left for dead this week. Third lowest ownership of uh, running backs projected for 15 more fantasy points is Aaron Jones. So yeah, I'm with hundred beautiful. Um, Dobbins is interesting. The risk with Dobbins is he's not going to be a 20 carry guy. Um, but the upside to him is that we know that he can score two or three touchdowns in a game. Um, yeah, so a Dobbins is definitely riskier, but Aaron Jones is, I think an awesome tournament play. Like if you think green Bay's offense is going to be reasonably capable, which I think we have reason to believe it should be at least in this matchup against not a great, against not a great defense, their best pass catchers out. Uh, there, you know, Romeo Dobbs, Dobbs, whatever, uh, was not really good last year, um, which made me sad because I drafted a bunch of him best ball last year. Um, he wasn't very good. Uh, and so then they've got two rookies <laughs> like Watson's their only good pass catcher who's proven himself in the NFL and he's hurt. So yeah, like Aaron Jones's role should be volume, voluminous, voluminous, um, Sure. Uh, big um and I that <laughs> bigly to be he's not going to be like a 22 plus carry guy he's never been that but i think that his passing game role on this one should be significant with them missing their you know their one proven nfl pass catcher and then down to you know and Dobbs might be out too and so then there's down to like some rookie receivers it makes sense that they would rely much more heavily on aaron jones in the passing game and so like i love him as a play um, I think he's great roster construction leverage because he gets you into that mid range, that balanced roster range that we talked about. And he gets you, uh, he gets you direct leverage off of, you know, some other mid range plays that are going to be more owned like Madison, um, and Mixon. And we've seen Aaron Jones's ceiling plenty of times over the years. He is 
explosive. Like he's, you know, unlike say Jamal Williams, where if you, if like Jamal Williams, when you give him a bunch more workload in projections, you're basically, you're raising his median, but it doesn't really raise his ceiling that much. Um, Aaron Jones, like you give him more workload, his ceiling goes to the roof because he's generally, he's achieved great games on, you know, 16 touches. And so if you bump up, if you give him a few more targets, his, you know, his ceiling is, is just about as high as anyone on the slate or any running back on the slate. Aaron Jones is a guy that saw two touches in the preseason. One was a six-yard reception, one was a six-yard carry. The field is not thinking about this man. And some, in the past, have called me the Aaron Jones whisperer. I'm calling three touchdowns for Aaron Jones this game. That's my bold call of the week. Oh, baby. I remember the, uh, the Aaron Jones game against the Lions a couple years ago. Yes, sir. Was on that set OWS fam Probably. apart. So we're going back to the Aaron Jones well. This is... Uh, Aaron Jones, high-low, bold call, week number two in my history. Uh, that Do with that what you will. Uh, but I'll be playing a lot of Aaron Jones. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay, so that's the theoretics behind that range. Um, let's talk quickly. What are your feelings on three running back rosters? Because we know kind of the field has been moving away from that because of the uncertainty at the position. But these are still players that carry paths to 30 points, primarily through 100 yards, rushing in two touchdowns. Are you going to be playing some three running back rosters this week? Yeah, I'm going to allow it. There's a lot of, allow of running backs. Um, you know, I've got, like, you've got Aaron Jones. You've got Etienne as great leverage pieces. I think Nick Chubb is an interesting piece, although he's clearly much more expensive. But, like, does Nick Chubb have the ceiling to put, uh, to be the highest scorer at the running back position? Yes. Um, you've got Bijan Robinson, who has, you know, you don't draft running backs in the first round, but dude's clearly awesome. Um, you've got Mixon, you've got Eckler, uh, you've got, and at the cheap range, you've got some interesting guys that we haven't talked about yet. You've got Dobbins. Like, there's a lot of running backs I like this week. Usually I try to trim my running back pool to like six or seven guys. Um, and then if I find that I'm having a really hard time doing that, that's when I will then decide to allow running back in the flex. And that's where I'm at this week. I've got like 11 running backs that I want to play. And so I'm, yeah, I'm definitely willing to have running back in the flex. Yes, sir. And I am, uh, I'm, I will have, even in single entry and three max, I will have rosters built with those three mid range guys on it because while they will individually be low owned, them all together is not going to be owned at all this week. Um, and they all yeah. bring viable pass to 30 plus fantasy points. Uh, again, once the first kick happens, we're looking for raw pointages, and those guys all have that path. Uh, so that's running back. Any other onesie twosies you want to cover running back real quick before we move on? Yeah, I just want to mention a couple of the other cheaper guys. So, like, the field's flocking to uh, Raheem Mostert, who, like, let's remember, what's, what's the left, left uh, Armstead is out, right? Yeah, left tackle. And so Miami's, Miami's offense is not, does not look the same without him. Um, and Mostert is not really a 20-plus carry guy. The matchup is good. Um, he feels like more of a median outcome guy. Like, yeah, he's fast, right? Like, he... You know, he could break one and he could get 100 yards and two touchdowns, but I think it's at his ownership that feels it feels not as likely as ownership as his ownership reflects. We talked about Jamal Williams and how he's more of a, you know, solid median outcome than big ceiling guy, especially in this matchup. But there are a couple of other cheap running backs I really like. Um, you talked about Rashad White already, um, but I want to mention Miles Sanders, who so Miles Sanders has always been talented. Right. Um, <clears throat> but he was stuck on Philly where. You know, he dealt with, like, workload, a split backfield, um, 
you know, he didn't get a, he didn't get a ton of like he didn't he rarely saw 20 touches in a game. And he had a quarterback come along who, you know, vultured a ton of goal line touches with butts with butt squats or whatever it's called, the butt shove, whatever it's called. I like butts. I like butt squats. Um, we'll go with that. Sure. So, you know, now he's at Carolina. And what do we know about Carolina and how they've used their running backs? Well, historically, Carolina has used the bell cow model. And it wasn't just because they had Christian McCaffrey. When Christian McCaffrey was hurt and they had, you know, uh, Chubba Hubbard or um, what's his name? Mike Davis. Uh, they would treat them like bell cows. They would get 20 plus touches. And so Miles Sanders is not priced like a 20 plus touch back. And will he be? I don't know for sure. But that's the kind of thing when you have a talented back who could feasibly see 20 plus touches in a plus matchup and he's 5,600 and no one's playing him. I'd rather be ahead of that than wait to see it. Um, because if he does get 20 plus touches in this matchup and, you know, he could, he could very, he's talented enough and the matchup is good enough where he could very easily smash at very low ownership. Um, and the second guy is Khalil Herbert. And I actually thought Khalil Herbert would be a lot higher owned because in best ball, his ADP was surging towards the end of best ball draft season. And let me like there. So Khalil Herbert played five games uh, in his career without David Montgomery and he saw 18-plus carries in every single one of those games and two-plus targets on average. So not a ton of passing volume. This isn't a huge passing volume offense. Uh, but his path to 20 carries is definitely there. And so the matchup against Green Bay's defense, which is better against the pass and the run, is a reasonable one. He's 5,300. No one's going to own him. He's leveraged off of fields. Um, I think Herbert is, you know, you have to believe that he's going to be the guy in that backfield but when he's been when when the guy in front of him got hurt before, he's been the guy before. I don't think Dante Foreman is a threat to him. Dante Foreman was, you know, apparently close to being cut. Um, Rashad Johnson is not going to be a, a like bell cow. He's more of like he feels more of like a Tariq Cohen kind of type guy. Um, and maybe his role grows through the season, but I don't think he's going to be super heavily involved early on. So Herbert and Sanders are two cheap running backs that I think bring. Plenty of ceiling at very modest ownership compared to the chalky cheap guys they're priced around. And then should we talk about Indiana? Yes. Indiana. Yes. Before yeah. we do that, I want to uh, give my thoughts on those two guys. Khalil Herbert, 100%. Um, it's leveraging the uncertainty associated with his workload. I think you can do that smartly at plus EV in week one. I want to quickly touch on uh, Miles Sanders. Yes, I expect I'm with you and I'm with uh, Jam's kind of in the same boat. I'm with you that I would expect uh, the workload to be there. My biggest issue, and I think we need to consider this when considering Miles Sanders this week, is the Atlanta Falcons defense is a very, very, very different defense this year. They brought in Calais Campbell. They brought in David Onyemata. They brought in, brought in Bud Dupree. They brought in Jesse Bates, a safety uh, uh, that we were lauding all last year uh, from Cincinnati. This defense spent some bingo bongos to become a better unit. And they did a lot of that to become a better unit against the run. Um, so while the workload expectation, um, the volume expectation does not match, so this is a median pricing is not matching his salary situation, I think the path to a, a slate-breaking ceiling or a GPP-worthy ceiling is probably lower than we want to admit off that volume. So quick spiel on that. Um, 
the the changes of the Atlanta Falcons defense this offseason um, are they're they're going to be a different unit uh, and it's going to be interesting to see and I think that's a little bit reflected in the in the game total of that game. Uh, Indianapolis, why don't you lead us off? I want to hear your thoughts first. Yeah, so Indy, of course, Jonathan Taylor is not playing um, <clears throat> because he's physically unable to perform. I don't know, um, you know, contract dispute and emotionally. Yeah, emotionally, emotionally un- unable to perform. Yeah. Um, so Indy is down to a backfield of. And I don't see if we have, have we gotten Zach Moss news overnight by chance. Uh, no, I don't think I'm so. Just checking real quick. I haven't seen it. Yeah, he's listed as questionable. So Zach Moss broke his arm, um, and he's listed as questionable. Um, you know, I think a lot of this is predicated on Zach Moss being out. Um, but if Zach Moss is out, then their backfield is going to be Deion Jackson, uh, rookie Evan Hull, and they'll probably call it a practice squatter. Um, mm-hmm. if, if Zach Moss is active, then it would be Moss instead of the practice squatter. So... How does that play out? Like, if Moss is active, I'm probably off of it because I think that ends up likely being some kind of three-way split on a, um, you know, and it's... I, real, real quick, X. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Um, Alex in Discord said Moss just downgraded Doubtful per report. Oh, interesting. Okay, I, like, I literally just looked it up before <laughs> before saying that, but it must have either just come or wrote. That's why we pay him the big bucks. Maybe He's on. I haven't picked it up yet. Cool. Thank you, Alex. That's helpful. Okay, so let's assume Moss is out. Um, so then you've got Deion Jackson, you've got Evan Hall, and you've got a practice squatter. Practice squatter is probably there as a pure backup. Um, and so then it's Jackson and Hall. So Hall is a rookie who has good pass game chops from his time in college. Uh, I think, you know, he is, from what I've seen at least, and this is not my, my area of expertise, but from what I've seen at least, most people think that Hull is built more like a, you know, he's more built like a traditional between the tackles, you know, running back. But Deion Jackson has succeeded when given opportunity. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to see if I can pull up his game logs from when he, when he played without Taylor. Um, but like Deion, when when he's been given opportunity, he's been successful. He had a couple games last year without Jonathan Taylor. He didn't get, you know, 20 carries. Um, you know, he got like in those games, he got, you know, eight carries, 11 carries, 12 carries, 13 carries. So he's not going to, he's not going to get you 20 plus carries. Um, he did, however, have a really strong passing game role in those games without Taylor that I'm mentioning. He had a total of 25 targets in those four games. So I don't know how this is going to play out, right? Like it could be it could be a 50-50 split. It could be that Deion Jackson is the starter and the main guy as long as he's playing well. Um, but if he struggles, then they kind of ride the hot hand. It could be that Evan Hall sucks up some of the passing game work, but Deion Jackson gets more rushing work than we saw him last time have last time. Um, at the end of the day, though, he's 40. Deion Jackson's 4100. Uh, Evan Hall is 4000 stone minimum. And Jackson, now that Moss is out, he, I'm going to have to bump up Jackson's ownership. You know, I expect he will catch ownership. But on most weeks, a $4,100 running back, uh, starting running back, is going to end up being 20% plus owned uh, most NFL weeks. Because this is week one, we have so much other value throughout the slate. His ownership probably isn't going to get up to that same kind of prohibitive level. And so I don't think you have to take it. You have to approach this from the perspective of he's going to be massively owned, and so he's the key focal decision point on the slate. Um, I think that at 4,100, his median projection is going to look really good. 
Uh, and then, and so will Evan Hulls, by the way, if they're the only two running backs that are likely to get any work. Um, they also serve as interesting leverage off of a likely very popular Anthony Richardson. Um, and so you just have to be careful, I think, with the roster you build there if you want to go that route, because what you're going to see is Anthony Richardson is going to have a lot of ownership. And then on rosters that have an expensive quarterback, those rosters are the ones that are more likely to roster Deion Jackson um, because they need the salary savings to afford the expensive quarterback, right? Um, and so the way that I think is actually most interesting to play Deion Jackson, if you want to play him, is to play him with another cheaper quarterback. I think that we are likely to see very few pairings of uh, Sam Howell and Deion Jackson, and probably very few of Baker Mayfield and Deion Jackson, because no one's going to play Baker Mayfield, Mayfield at all. Um, or if you play Deion Jackson with an expensive quarterback, like just recognize that's going to be the logical way that most people are going to play him because you play expensive quarterback, you need more salary savings. Deion Jackson's there as salary savings. Um, and so just find another way to make that roster different if you start the roster with expensive quarterback plus Deion Jackson. And also recognize you could play Evan Hall because we often think when there's a situation like this, we think we know which the right running back is and we don't always, or things happen. I remember... Last year, I see Cubs fan in the chat, so I'm going to call him out here. Last year, uh, Trey Sermon was a surprise inactive for the 49ers in week one. And so Raheem Mostert, who was on the 49ers at, the, at that time, or was it the year before? I don't remember. Um, Raheem Mostert was the 49ers RB1 then at the time, and his ownership spiked, uh, of course, right? Like, all of a sudden, the, back, the other backfield guy's out. It's just Mostert. It was a good matchup. It was, um, you know, it was a good offense. And so Mostert's ownership really climbed. And meanwhile, our friend Cubs fan was going around saying, hey, who's the RB2 on the 49ers? And it was some guy that no one had ever heard of called Elijah Mitchell. And turns out Raheem Mostert gets hurt really early in the game. And Elijah, Mitch Elijah Mitchell, at minimum salary and sub 1% ownership, scores over 20 fantasy points. And so, you know, just recognize that the, the Gian Jackson, Evan Hull situation could be something similar to that. It could be that we get the workload wrong and that Evan Hull's the guy they just decide to go with. Or it could be that, you know, something happens to Deion Jackson early. Maybe he gets hurt. Maybe he just, you know, maybe he just starts out really cold. And then, um, and then you know, Evan Hull starts out hot and they ride the hot hand that way. So I think that there's ways to smartly play Deion Jackson. Uh, and, Evan, and don't forget Evan Hull. Yeah, I think my take on the situation is on the other side. Um, yes, the Colts have, I think PFF ranked their offensive line like 11th coming into the season. So they have a strong offensive line still. The problem for me is Deion Jackson is more of a contributor through the pass game, as you noted. But with Anthony Richardson at quarterback, one, highly unlikely to check down at a high rate as compared to a guy like Matt Ryan at the end of his career. And then two, the, uh, okay, we'll just leave it at that. We'll just leave it at the one. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of the, the mindset of, I don't expect Deion Jackson to see the same type of pass game usage, which is where he would primarily be, uh, draw his ceiling from. The other side of that is, what do we expect from the Colts? And in my mind, in looking at ownership, the field is not going to overlook Anthony Richardson. He's a rock solid play. He's going to be in my player pool. But his pass catchers are not going to be utilized by the field. Michael Pittman is sub 5% ownership across the industry. Um, Alec Pierce, let's talk about that situation real quick. 
Michael Pittman saw approaching a 40% team target market share with the ones in the preseason. Alec Pierce saw close to a 40% um, share of the team's air yards in the preseason. That is significant. So we kind of know. And, and the field would probably be paying a little bit more attention to Alec Pierce had he come down with that front pylon touchdown that um, he was not able to maintain possession going to the ground. I think it was preseason week one, maybe week two. I can't remember. Um, but we know kind of what to expect. We know kind of who Anthony Richardson is. He struggles with accuracy over the short to intermediate area of the field. He has a cannon of an arm, and he is the most athletically gifted quarterback to come out since testing began. So all of that, like, there are viable paths to a very, very cheap stack of Anthony Richardson, Alec Pierce, where who's seeing all of these uh, intended air yards, who's seeing all of these, all of these deep looks where Anthony Richardson rushes for 100 and scores a touchdown on the ground. He passes for 200, maybe 180, but Alec Pierce is seeing 100 yards and a score in that. Um, very, very cheap, high upside. And my worry with the backfield is that it might not matter, um, right? It, it's these, Deion Jackson and um, Hull, they, they just might not matter because we can't expect a high pass game volume we can't really expect or foresee viable paths to, again, raw pointages um, mattering here. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm personally and in a single entry three max mindset, not playing that backfield. I understand going there um, in MME. My way of leveraging the ownership on um, Anthony Richardson is just pairing him with with a pass catcher, and primarily that's going to be Alec Pierce for me. I love the Pierce call and he's so, and he gets you leverage off of the naked Anthony Richards and stacks. He gets you leverage off of all the other cheap wide receiver exposure yeah. that's out there. And he also still, he gets you, he, he gets you leverage off the other cheap wide receiver exposure out there at a low ownership that still allows you the benefit of playing a cheap wide receiver in that you have lots of salary for the rest of your roster. Yeah. And he's sub 1% currently projections. Yeah. Uh, and he's not like I am confident he is. I, I don't see any reason to raise his projection. I don't see anyone in. I don't see any projections or anyone talking about him. There's. I don't see any reason to raise that projection. He's going to be one percent at most. I think. Bingo, bango. So that's running backs. We, we're going to try and keep this to an hour and a half. Sorry, guys. It's going to go to two. Oh God. <laughs> we're, we got to get through wide receiver, tight end, and, and talk about defense real quick. Um, let's talk about some wide receivers. Wide receivers for me, again, with this mindset that we kind of have this like information overload to start the season. We have so much information coming off best ball. We have all the information from the off season. We have all two weeks of content providers popping out information. Um, we kind of get this feeling of information overload to start the season. And when you combine that kind of um, information overload with this idea that we don't know a lot and we think we do, um, and with this kind of general landscape of week one, where a lot of these game environments are kind of have game totals that are clumped together, game environment hunting is so, so important. We talked about that earlier. But how it is important or how you handle that, how you build around that has to do with our primary stacks. So I talked about my five player um, player pool for quarterbacks. And I'm primarily, you got a hint of it with that Alec Pierce discussion, primarily concerned with how those team stacks and game stacks come together. So my wide receiver usage, as opposed to, uh, and 
we'll do, we'll place the caveat on the uh, the players that we kind of need to be accounting for in Justin Jefferson, Chris Olave, and um, Calvin Ridley. The rest of my wide receiver pool is almost entirely tied to these game environment bets, and I think that's a way to minimize the uncertainty, the things that need to go right in week one when the field is so kind of glommed off on this I know better mindset and building for median projection. Um, what are your takes on that real quick uh, before we jump into wide receivers? Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously, as we know, right, pass catcher production is tied heavily to quarterback, duh. Um, so if we're going with the approach of attacking game environments more heavily, then it does make sense that you're going to find fewer onesie, twosie, you know, the term we have coined at OWS is floating plays, plays that you would feel comfortable with on any roster, um, no matter what game that roster is built around. The number of wide receivers that you would have in your floating play pool is probably smaller if you're taking this, you know, more game stack heavy approach. And so, like, my floating play pool for wide receiver right now is very small. It's Justin Jefferson, Jamar Chase, it's, um, yeah, God, uh, Calvin Ridley, um, Chris Olave, Zay Flowers, um, and, and Puka uh, on, um, on the Rams. And I think that's probably it. That's fun like to I say. wanted to have what? Sorry, I said that's fun to say. I wanted to have you know a wide receiver pool, a floating play pool that spans the range of salaries, so that they can sort of fit onto different rosters effectively. Um, but other than that, I think it really makes sense to take a more you know game environment heavy approach, and and that might differ on different weeks possibly. Um, but on this week, I feel like it makes a lot of sense. Yes, sir. And again, it's just theoretics being able to minimize the things that we need to get right through all of this uncertainty, through all of this, um, you know, overall macro perspective of week one and the the uncertainty that is associated with that, through the macro perspective of how we expect rosters to be built. Um, and it's just a very easy way to get access to bulk upside at low ownership and minimize things that have to go right and alter the way that our rosters are coming together. Um, any, you, you mentioned a lot of names there. I, I'm completely on board with all of those. Um, I think all of those are solid bets from a um, range of outcomes versus salary perspective this week. Are there any other guys that you're going to be mixing in at a higher rate than normal um, as far as one-offs or onesie-twosies here? I don't think so. Um not settled on it yet i don't i'm not sure i want to i haven't thought through the green bay situation much since watson news just came out like i drafted a lot of jalen reed in best ball um but i don't know i just feel like he's gonna end up at ownership similar to marvin mims is what i think is likely um so mims's ownership is going to come down a little bit because uh you know because now there's another another viable cheap guy um, although I will say, I will note, if you're looking at OWS ownership, I have Judy in because uh, in hearings like local Colorado news seems to be thinking that Judy is trending towards playing. And I'll believe it when I see it, right? But for now, I have him in. So that's so Mims' ownership isn't as high at OWS as it is in other places. Um, but I think that, you know, if if Judy's out, Mims and Reed probably both end up in the like 12 to 18% range. Um, and so I don't know, you know, generally speaking, I'm not going to play a min price wide receiver, uh, you know, min price rookie wide receiver 
at that kind of ownership on a, on a week when there are a lot of other viable choices. So I don't think I'm going to end up heavy on read. I just, I don't know who else I feel really strongly about, like in a, as a, as a naked play. Um, I think that's probably it. I think you can make some cases for other guys if you want to, like you mentioned Rash- Rashid Shahid earlier. I think, you know, his deep role is, uh, attractive and he could, you know, get, he could, he could be the kind of guy who catches, remember there's that game last year where Gabe Davis caught two balls for like 103 yards and two touchdowns. Um, like that's, that's a Shahid type line too, right? Like that could be him. So like you can make cases for other guys. Um, but for me, I think that's really it for now. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Attack game environments. Um, let's move over to tight ends. We'll talk about defenses, and then we'll open it up to questions. So if you have a question you want to ask live, um, raise your hand. If you want to put it in the chat, we'll handle those at the end of this discussion. Um, tight ends. Weird, weird landscape in week one, right? We don't have Travis Kelsey on the slate. He didn't play anyway. We don't have Darren Waller on the slate. He might not play anyway. We have Mark Andrews, who's questionable, um, missed a bunch of practices, limited in others this week. We have George Kittle, who's questionable, missed a bunch of practices, um, limited in the others this week. Both of those guys, I believe, are dealing with hamstring stuff. Uh, sorry, Kittle's a groin. Um, so the top end in, the, in, in player pricing at the tight end position is basically TJ Hawkinson. We talked about him earlier um, as far as the matchup and that game environment. We have Dallas Goddard at 5K, Tyler Higby at 48. Now you're into like the Evan Ingrams and the Dalton Schultz's, Kyle Pitts's of the world. As far as how the macro perspective of the, the slate and salary goes, as far as where we expect people to be allocating salary, what does that mean to you as far as what we expect from this tight end position? Oh, it's going to be Mark Andrews and punts. Um, I think is where people are going, right? Like assuming Andrews plays, um, which I think the last thing I saw as the coach said, it doesn't seem like a big deal. So, you know, he probably, so if he plays, he's probably the highest on tight end of the slate. Uh, Musgrave might compete for that. If Mark Andrews does miss though, Isaiah likely will be the highest on tight end of the slate almost for certain. Um, because we know that Likely's good. We know he'll be involved in the passing game. People are going to play him. I will say, just keep in mind that this year's Ravens offense is not last year's Ravens offense, where it was the tight end, uh, either Andrews or Likely, and then like a bunch of scrubs at wide receiver because they didn't have Flowers, they didn't have Beckham, and Bateman was hurt. Um, this, this year's Ravens offense is very different, and so we cannot necessarily bank on the same passing game role for their tight end as we have in the past likely would still project as a strong play, um, but he's going to be very, very owned. Um, I think that Musgrave is where people are going. Um, that seems to be like the chalk play, uh, especially in cash. Um, I think that's fine. I think you have to be, I don't know, he's gotten so much camp hype, but I'm always somewhat wary of rookie tight ends. Um until they've proven it. And and maybe that's a, you know, error on me. I said another I said another area that like I want to be early on this. But I want to be early on guys when people when the field isn't playing them. When the field is waiting to see what happens. If the field is embracing that yeah, oh, this guy got so much preseason hype, he's going to smash week 1 right out of the gate as a rookie tight end, which we know is a position that historically rookies have really struggled with in the NFL. That's a position that I feel a little more wary about. Um but I think overall, the macro, the macro view, I think, is that like outside of Andrews, like people aren't going to play Hawkinson. I think you're right on that, um, on the reasoning. 
people are going to play Tyler Higby, I think, because he feels really safe on a Rams uh, yeah. offense that just really lacks weapons. But Higby's 4,800. And so you really want, you know, at tight end, for a 4,800 tight end, you want at least 20 points. And ideally, he's getting you 25. I don't think Higby has that kind of ceiling in this offense. We have seen it before from him. It was a couple of years ago. There was like a few week stretch where Gerald Everett was on the Rams at the time and he was out and Higby just went wild. Um, but that was with a different, you know, different court. That was with Goff. Um, I just, I don't see the ceiling at 4,800 for Higby. We haven't seen it in this version of the Rams offense with Stafford at quarterback. I think he's a solid floor play. If you have the money in cash, he's a great floor play who's unlikely to fail. Um, but in tournaments, I, I don't see the ceiling and the ownership makes me nervous. Um, most people are going to be spending in the 4K range or lower, though, is my expectation. Yeah. So for me, this is very, very much a get gross at the yeah. end of the week. This is leverage all the uncertainty. Let's get weird. Let's do some crazy shit. So some of those names that stick out to me are Greg Dulcich. And this is the caveat there is if Jerry Judy is out, I expect Denver to run a lot. Knowing Sean, who Sean Payton is, I expect Denver to run almost like could be 60, 70% of 12 personnel. If Judy misses like that, he, he is not afraid to mix stuff up. Um, and Dulcich is a guy who was priced thinking that he was the every down tight end. We now know that that is Adam, Adam Trotman in Denver, but He's a guy who has a much higher targets per route run rate expectation than Adam Trotman. He is a guy who is going to have a much higher yards per target than Adam Trotman. And if he is kind of utilized in 12 personnel as the slot tight end with Adam Trotman in line, there is definite upside. Um, and his ownership is going to be minuscule because he's priced at 4K. Um, and he's not the, the the starter at tight end for Denver. Um other guys, Taysom Hill, saw the, the chat uh, bomb there. Yes, Dookie, Taysom Hill, brother. I am, uh, we talked about that earlier. He is a way to account for Chris Olave. He is a way where we might see 8 to 12 carries. We might see 3 to 4 targets. We might see a pass attempt or two. Um, we might see him score a special teams touchdown because why the F not? Uh, <laughs> he doesn't play special teams. I'm just kidding. Um, well, sometimes he does mix in. Uh, so that's interesting for the theoretics behind it he is not Taysom Hill is not a median play he is not a medium projection play he is not going to pop on optimizers he is a let's get funky let's do the funky chicken let's get weird we are going to account for the expected production in New Orleans against a very very pass funnel Tennessee Titans defense in a game environment that could has a path to blow up um, in ways that the field is simply not. Um, and he accounts for a very, very gross position this week. Um, I want to throw, I'm going to save my grossest, <laughs> my grossest call at tight end. I want to hear, do you have any X and the grossest call at tight end will lead us into defense as well. I don't know how you get grosser than Jason Hill. With Let's his, go, dude. It's coming. It's coming. The projection has to be one point. <laughs> but I love it. I mean, but you're right. It's that, coming. Like, he has these games of one point, one point, one point, seventeen points, one point, one point. You know, like the way they use him is so creative, and uh, it's it, it's usually terrible. 
Um, but when he hits, he can hit. Um, there are a couple of other ones I like, and then I'll get to my grossest. So another one I like, and I actually forgot a wide receiver. There's two guys. There's a, a tight end and a wide receiver I like that are interesting ways to play uh, at the most popular game on the slate, um, which are Gerald Everett and Josh Palmer. These guys are getting no ownership in uh, this offensive game environment that everyone seems to want a part of via the more expensive pieces. You know, are their median outcomes great? No. Um, but you're just sort of hoping touchdown variance flows their way. And Josh Palmer uh, was playing ahead of, um, oh, Quintus Johnson, is that his name? The rookie? Is that right? I don't even know, yeah. to be honest. The rookie wide receiver on the... Um, on the Chargers, who is being drafted in the top 100 in best ball, while Palmer is being drafted in the 200s. Um, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Quinton. Quinton Johnson. Johnson. Thank you. Um, so, you know, Palmer, if he plays ahead of Johnson and if he's playing a relatively, you know, uh, he's playing 70% of the snaps at 4K, is another cheap wide receiver you can throw in the pool at zero ownership in the best game environment on the slate. And then Gerald Everett kind of fits that same boat as a, as a very un- overlooked piece of that game environment. So that gives you a way to approach that game environment without stacking it or even in a stack of it um, with some low owned ways to, to attack it um, outside of the, the, the Eckler, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Tyree kill, you know, Raheem Mustard that everyone's playing. Um, another two other cheap tight ends I like before the gross one um, are Juwan Johnson, who I think showed great touchdown equity last year and also serves the purpose of accounting for Olave. Um, in that pass funnel game environment. I think Juwan Johnson, you know, has, he's not going to get you 100 yards. Um, there's no, but, like, but he could easily get you two touchdowns if the red zone looks flow to him. Um, I like Irv Smith as well. We've, you know, Cleveland's defense has been pretty schematically vulnerable to tight ends for years. And, you know, he's a cheap piece of an elite offense. Um, we know that Joe Burrow. Uh, scrambles around and takes sacks a lot, and that means he's often looking for short, uh, you know, short area work when he can't find Chase open downfield. Um, which could, you know, we saw some big games out of um, what was C.J. Uzoma a couple years ago, um, kind of out of nowhere as a tight end who had no real, you know, uh, no real uh, reputation for being a good pass catcher. Um, Irv Smith does have a reputation for being a good pass catcher. Um, so I could see Irv Smith, and then my gross one, and hold your nose, because if you know me, you know I hate this dude, Mike Gesicki. Um, Mike I love Gesicki it. Let's go. is going to be on the field a ton, because the Patriots are going to, they're going to line him up more as a wide receiver, which is also what the Dolphins started doing. Um, he's more of a wide receiver who qualifies at the tight end position. I think his agent actually tried to get him classified as a wide receiver. Yeah, to get him paid as a so wide yeah. you know you're getting essentially a 3200 wide receiver. Uh, you know my my arguments against Kaseki in Miami were really just that they didn't use him effectively. They didn't you know his his, his targets were minuscule because the volume was so concentrated to Hill and Waddle. Um, the Patriots are more of a spread out offense, and they have a lot of question marks at wide receiver. They have Devonte Parker who's hurt. They have Kendrick Bourne, who's, you know, like he's a guy. He's fine. 
Um, they have Juju Smith-Schuster, who I believe I saw some kind of report uh, that like uh, that's from someone saying like his knee is you know one wrong step away from exploding. Explode. Uh, they have some guy named Demario yeah. Douglas. Like they just don't have weapons. And so is it that feasible? Is it feasible to think that Mike Gasecki becomes one of their you know main weapons and that he gets five to seven targets here? I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to believe. And I think that you know we know the Patriots are likely going to want to try to play a slow, run-focused game. Um, but it's hard to run against the Eagles. And if the Eagles get out to a lead, which seems likely uh, at some point in the game, the Patriots are likely going to have to take a more pass-heavy approach. And I think that Gusecki could easily be the beneficiary of that. He's really cheap, and no one's going to play him. It is the gross—that's that, that's very much a gross play. That is not the kind of, like, that's not like a flag plant. I, I want tons of exposure to this guy. Um, but if the field is going to play him at sub 1%, I think his likelihood of putting up 15 points is greater than sub 1%. The whole theme this week was game environments. And for me, was lower exposure to quarterbacks. I did mention that I had Jalen Hurts in my player pool, and I'm going to be attacking game environments. Jalen uh, on my Jalen Hurts roster, Mike Gesicki will be the bring back. Um, it kind of it tackles it, it checks so many boxes. It's a leverage play for, uh, away from the field tendencies. It is a way to attack that game environment. It is a way to get gross at tight end. It's a kind of all encompassing weird off the board play for me. Um, so I am one hundred percent on board. You ready for my gross play? That's also going to lead us into defense, dude. This one might make you cringe. Um, even more, I mean, even more than Mike Kosicki. Durham Smythe. Oh my God. <laughs> Let's fucking go. I love dude. it. Let's go. Durham Smythe. So what does this do? And, and the way that I'm playing this, I, I will have Durham Smythe on maybe one of my seven rosters. And the way that I'm playing this is I am not attacking this game environment heavily. I want to account for it in some fashion across my portfolio. And I'm doing that by saying, hey, if this game environment fails to live up to its hype, okay, I'm accounting for that by not very not attacking it at a high, uh, high um, <laughs> certainty. I don't know, uh, attacking it at a high level. If this, if the Miami, <laughs> if the Miami Dolphins are thrown into what's another way i guess what's another way that this game environment fails it is by pairing durham Smythe with the los angeles chargers defense we just talked about teron armstead is out let's look at the chargers defense they have joey bosa on one end they have cleo mack on the other uh who are going to be getting after um tua here they have jc jackson who is now healthy in the secondary they have derwin james in the secondary they brought in asante samuel they, who is now healthy um they have these pieces they brought in eric kendricks to be this kind of linebacker athletic linebacker positioning linebacker that they haven't had um they've done a lot on the defensive side of the ball here and they're getting healthy and we've hyped the chargers defense uh in seasons past and we also get now a offensive coordinator shift for the Chargers in Kellen Moore that is going to allow Brandon Staley to call defensive plays, which he has not done yet. And he is a very, very defensive-minded head coach. So all that kind of comes in. Teron Armstead being out, 
I'm not targeting this game environment heavily. What if the Chargers get after Tua? What if Tua gets concussed? I hope I hope to God he does not. But what if something happens and now the Miami Char- or Miami Dolphins are playing from behind in this game? It's a game in Los Angeles, and now the Chargers are forced. And we've also had reports this offseason that said that Mike McDaniel is looking for ways to get Durham Smythe involved in the offense more, which is hilarious that they go move on from Mike Kosicki, uh, who is this all crazy athletic type tight end. And now they're like, all right, we got Durham Smythe, who's this primary blocker, but uh, we're going to get him involved in running routes. It's like, okay, <laughs> do more, do some more blow, but that sounds great. Um, anyway, so yeah. Now, that is the grossest joke we've had on this show. Let's and we just talked about Baker Mayfield, <laughs> Taysom Hill, and Micah Stephens. Bruh. Durham Smythe had 20 targets last yeah, season. You're telling me, dude, but he's gonna be on the field, and this is so gross in tight end overall. What is a way that Tyreek Hill and uh and everyone else in Miami, Raheem Mostert, um, and like what are the ways that these pieces are gonna fail? I don't know, man. If it's Durham Smythe, I'm going to win some money. I mean, I will say, like, the upside case is what? Like, three catches for 20 yards and two touchdowns? And, and that's 17 points. You need the two touchdowns. Yeah, yeah like, you need the two touchdowns. And, and we have seen it. You know, like, to be fair, like, we have seen, you know, tight ends get used frequently near the goal line. And that's a common thing. And so, and we have seen Durham Smythe be used near the goal line. So, okay. <laughs> that's... Yes, I outgrossed you, X. You Let's go. did outgross me. <laughs> Let's talk about defense real quick. the 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 oh, most man. chalky piece, the most chalky piece on the slate is a defense. Yep, it is. And we, I alluded to it in the write up. I was like, hey, this on paper, this play looks very good. The Commanders are in a great spot. They have a top three. They have a top five, maybe top three defensive line in the in the NFL this season. They're playing an Arizona Cardinals who just decimated their roster. Um, Oh my God. I just got a text from my wife that my son is covered in poop. (laughs) All the non-parents out there, this is what you're in for should you decide to have children. Allow us to be your birth control. Uh, But yeah, so there's a lot. There's a lot going on for the commander's defense. That said, defensive scoring is the most variant of any position in the league because so much more a higher percentage of their scoring output and potential is deri- uh, derived from touchdowns. So we cannot predict those. We can place ourselves um, in the best position to try and realize or, or have the defense be in better position to score defensive touchdowns through pressure in the backfield, through um, pressure on the quarterback, through a mismatch in the trenches. So a lot of this is kind of, yes, commanders are a great defense. I might have one of my seven rosters, nine rosters in play this week have the commander's defense just because they are, (laughs) they might be 45% owned in smaller field, single entry three max. Um, And that's just something that I'm always looking to leverage off of. So how do we leverage off of that? Um, For me, the top two leverage plays off of that are the Baltimore Ravens. The Houston Texans have three starting offensive linemen that are going to be out in week one either have already been ruled out or on PUP or IR. The other, um, and, and then the Ravens are no longer this Wink Martindale defense where they're looking to create havoc, but they are a solid on-paper roster uh, top to bottom. They're playing at home. They're 10-point favorites. They have playing against a rookie quarterback. The other one is actually the Jacksonville Jaguars, priced at 3500 Same thing, they're playing a rookie quarterback who has been prone to mistakes. 
while it's leverage off of the Anthony Richardson ownership. Um, and there's a lot going on for the, well, I'll add this. The Jacksonville Jaguars are the fastest defense. If you look at the individual pieces that they have on their defense, they are fast, man. And they are good at closing on the ball. They are good at closing down gaps. So a rookie quarterback who is playing a very, very fast defense could be, could see something that is no longer there when he releases the football could lead to some picks. Maybe one of those turns into a pick six. Uh, that's my spiel. I mentioned the Chargers. Um, I'm not opposed to playing the um, the Miami Dolphins as well in that same game environment. If you're betting against that game environment, um, they still have a very, very strong on-paper defense. They spent a lot of money on the defense this offseason, um, and they have a new out defensive coordinator. Uh, your turn. Go. Yeah, but, so defense is tricky because... Washington is the best defense on paper um, in terms of their defensive talent and the matchup. Like, we've seen mega chalk defenses before. I believe last year there was a week where the Bengals were like 40% owned, and we were like, don't play them. They're not actually a very great defense. Um, and they bombed. In this case, though, like, we also had a week like last year where Dallas defense was like 30 or 40% owned, and we said, you know, that ownership is scary, but at least in this case, it's a really good defense in a really good matchup. This is a really good defense in a really good matchup. I will be playing them. You just have to think about, just like, just like any piece of good chalk, you have to think about how you play them. And so like, I'm definitely going to be underweight the field on them because I'm not going to play, I, I would never play like 40% of one defense. That's not my style. Um, but I will have them in my player pool. There, I will be heavier on them in rosters like, for example, Baker Mayfield stacks because I don't have to worry as much about ownership in those rosters. I'll be heavier on them in my balanced build stacks that don't use a cheap wide receiver or tight end because you don't have to worry as much about the rest of your ownership in those rosters. So it's not so much a do I play them or not, it's how do I think about this position and when do I play them. They are in a great spot. I'm 100% with you on the Ravens. But there are a lot of good defenses this week and defenses in good matchups. Like, what if Baker Mayfield is, in fact, still terrible? Vikings defense, as you said, Hilo, they're going to be more aggressive. They're going to try to get after the quarterback more. Jacksonville defense against a rookie quarterback. Seattle defense against Matt Stafford and his, like, you know, band of merry men that have no actual good pass catchers among them. Um, Philadelphia defense, one of the best defenses in the league, um, on the road against not an intimidating uh, Patriots offense. Atlanta defense versus Carolina and a rookie quarterback. Like, there's, you know, depending on how big you want your defensive player pool to be, which is largely a, a factor of, like, how many rosters you decide to enter, you know, there are a lot of defenses in pretty reasonable spots. And so I think that Washington is the best on paper play, but there are plenty of opportunities to get away from them if, you know, where you choose to. Like, I would not play Washington defense on a roster that started with, I don't know, let's just say Anthony Richardson naked plus Justin Jefferson and Marvin Mims and Luke Musgrave and Calvin Ridley and probably not putting Washington defense on that roster because you're already embracing a lot of ownership, just individual player ownership as well as common construction strategy on a roster like that. I'm probably not playing a roster like that. Um, but if I did, I wouldn't put Washington defense on it. So like they are the best play, but I will say like one thing to note though, I actually think the Ravens are the best play when ownership is considered. Washington defense I currently I've projected for over 30% ownership. Ravens defense I have projected for 2% ownership. Both in, both elite defenses in great spots. 
The difference is the Ravens are 4,000 and Washington is 2,800, and years of DFS has trained people pay down at defense. And so a lot of people blindly pay down at defense. But guess what we have a ton of in week one? Salary. It is easy to get to the Ravens defense if you want to. And so that ownership is just a mismatch where, you know, is Washington is like 16 or 17 X more owned than Baltimore. Are they 16 times more likely to outscore Baltimore? I think the answer to that is pretty clearly no. So for me, I'm playing Washington. I'm going to be underweight the field, and I'm going to be very careful about what rosters I put Washington on. I want to be very much overweight the field on Baltimore. And then I, I listed the other defenses I'm interested with. I, I am also down for uh, Dolphins and Chargers, which, you know, it's a high game total, but those are both good defenses, right? Like those are, you know, you want, like, I don't want to play shitty defenses. Like those are both good defenses that can, they can get after the quarterback. They can cover well. They can generate picks and turnovers. Um, you know, both of them, especially the Dolphins last year had a couple of really big defensive performances. Um, like those are defenses I want to be on because not only are they good off, are they good defenses? They give you leverage over the most common game environment. The final one I'll add is the Seattle Seahawks. Um, this is a changing unit as well. Um, they brought back Bobby Wagner. Uh, they brought in Uchenna Nuosu. Um, they, and they have some top draft picks that are playing in the middle of their defense. Um, Draymond Jones is back. Uh, so this is a defense that kind of fixed or is attempting to fix their biggest deficiency last year, which was their linebacking core. Um, so if they're playing heavy cover two, heavy cover three behind that now extremely athletic and smart and all pro type linebacker core, um, very, very different different look. And they're playing a, um, a Rams defense at home um, or a Rams offense at home without Cooper Cup. Uh, so a lot to like. Uh, and Stafford is very, very muchly, bigly statuesque at this point in his career. Uh, so potential for more sacks, picks, that kind of stuff. Um, those are the final defenses we'll mention. Uh, we got two questions. Let's see here. Um, yeah, we crushed it. Uh, I'll just read them, uh, or does Aaron going to come up again? Let's see. I'll just, I'll, okay, I'll read them. Uh, first question from World of Atlas. Any glaring discrepancies in best ball ADP and week one pricing? Yes, that is a very good question, and it's almost, um, it's almost across the board, or it feels almost across the board. Um, the big ones are the big movers, right? And those are, but those are the guys that are gonna see the ownership, and that's where a lot of this psychological stuff comes into play. Marvin Mims, Jaden Reed, Luke Musgrave, those were some of the highest ADP movers um, as we got towards the end of the season in best ball. Um, we also have, which this is one that. Um, or these are two that were major movers in the top five rounds that are not expected to get a lot of ownership. Um, Chris Olave and uh, Calvin Ridley. We mentioned those guys. So that is a good exercise to kind of get an overall expectation of um, ownership. And that this is like a week and a half ago when we were just looking into this slate overall. Um, but now that we kind of have the 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 answers to the test as far as ownership expectations, we can start piecing those, uh, transitioning those ideas from ADP best ball discrepancies to now, how do we encompass that in the overall um, state of the slate, which I think we did a good job of doing this uh, this episode. X, anything to add on that? No, and I was, I'd say like, it's an interesting exercise, but be careful putting too much weight on it because best ball drafts are for the entire season. And this is week one. 
So, like, Devontae Adams is a first-round, you know, end-of-first-round, beginning of second-round pick in, in best ball. He's pricey. He's projecting for very low ownership. But he's in one of the worst possible matchups on the road in Denver, uh, which is hard for players, you know, because of the altitude adjustment, right? Like, road offenses generally do not generate enormous DFS scores in Denver. There are exceptions, but it's pretty rare. So, like, just don't put too much weight on it. But I think, as Hilo pointed out, there are a few that you've seen steamed up in best ball ADP towards the end of the season who are also probably cheaper than they should be and probably cheaper than they will be in a few more weeks in DFS uh, and who are attracting a lot of ownership like Mims. Um, and, you know, then Olave and Ridley are not attracting as much ownership as they should, but we've already, you know, we already covered that. Yeah, I will say Devontae Adams will be, I mentioned that Russell Wilson is going to be one of my quarterbacks. He will be the bring back for me. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in that situation and i'm just going to look to leverage it based purely on his expected ownership um next question from crazy coop do you really need to bring back from patriots in an eagle stack with their propensity to pile on and patriots lack of explosive players my thinking here is it has more to do with the state of the slate the state of the tight end position and the best path and yes the eagles will score without being forced to but they will score without being forced to over the first three quarters. Um, and they proved that last season. So while this, you're not, it's not the same mindset of I'm betting on this game environment. It's simply a, a, a more of a bet on how do we expect the Patriots to react if they're getting stomped into the ground and then who benefits the most in that situation. So you, you, you can 100% play Eagles pieces, and they proved this last year without a bring back, and that is EV plus EV, and that is sharp. So this isn't a situation where I am forcing a bring back. It is a situation of I expect the Patriots to be passing a little bit more if they are trailing, and they don't really have um, much in the way of depth at the wide receiver position, and two of their top wide receivers are banged up. X. Yeah, I think that one. So that, keep in mind, the Eagles are one of the few teams last year that would actually bench some of their starters late into a game where they were up by a lot. You know, some teams will just kind of like take it a little easy. They'll play a little slower. They'll run more. Um, the Eagles actually would bench their starters and put backups in for like Q4 if they were up by three scores. So a lot of times with the Eagles, you were relying on them to put up huge, you know, huge point totals in the first two or three quarters. And that would hopefully be enough because if the other team wasn't keeping up. You know, so they actually are a team that will take the foot off the gas. You just you're just hoping they can score enough early, which they absolutely are capable of doing. Um, when you think about bringbacks, you also want to consider a couple things. You want to consider opportunity cost, like who else could you have at that position instead, um, and then you want to consider salary. Uh, so the Patriots make interesting bringbacks because they are comically cheap. So you know, like Mike Gesicki, Kendrick Bourne, the only really fully healthy wide receiver. Um, those guys are so cheap. But I think they make sense as bringbacks. Um, I don't think you have to play them, but they're so cheap that they can easily put up, you know, pretty reasonable scores um, without huge performances. And then the opportunity cost piece. So the opportunity cost piece makes me less interested in Kendrick Bourne because there are a lot of good wide receiver plays this week. But it makes me more interested in Mike Gusecki because there aren't a lot of good tight end plays. And so when you think about salary, like what does Gusecki need to have a good game for a 
for a 3K tight end, it's, you know, 15 points. Can he get there? I think so. Can he get there? Does he have a better chance of getting there in a game in which the Patriots fall behind early? Yes, they'll throw more. Um, and then, you know, who could I be playing instead of him? Well, at 3,200, my choices of who to play instead of him are like Hayden Hurst, you know, um, Luke Musgrave. Like, I'm totally fine playing Gusecki over those guys in, a, in an Eagles stack. So don't just think about the teams when you're thinking about bringbacks. Think about the opportunity cost of the roster of the roster you're consider, uh, the roster position you're considering using, and think about salary of the bringback of like who do I need to play? Like there's other there's other times when they have ex, when a, an expensive team on the other side, and you say I don't necessarily need to bring back because the guy I would bring it back with is 8K, and you know it, I think it's unlikely he scores over 30 points in this game, right? Like in this case, your bring back your the potential bringback of Gasecki is 3K, so. The, the, the ceiling you need is much lower. So I think Gasecki is a, is a very logical bring back, but I would concur that you don't, you don't need it. And so the way I play that is um, in rosters, that, like a rule that says in rosters that include Jalen Hurts, boost Mike Gasecki by 25% or whatever, right? Like until he, until I, so I, what I, what I, I want to have is, you know, Gasecki on, I don't know, 50% of my Hurts rosters or something like that. Yep. In concurrence there, with that, we are damn glad to be back. Thank you for joining us. For those new here, check out us uh, through Inner Circle every week, uh, Saturday at 11 Eastern. Uh, we do this every single week. For those that have been here, ride and dies, thank you again. We are damn glad to be back. With that, X, thank you, my friend. We look forward to our discussions every single week. Always a pleasure. Good luck. Crush this weekend. And we will see you at the top of the leaderboards. Peace. Peace.